Turn with me this evening to Matthew chapter 19 in your New Testament scriptures, the first gospel, and Matthew 19 as we continue our way through this gospel. I'll read the opening 12 verses. We'll look at the whole chapter tonight. It's again been studying Matthew in more of an overview fashion, looking at the big themes and how each paragraph supports those, so we can look at the whole chapter tonight. But let's read verses 1 through 12. Matthew 19, beginning at verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this work, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, thank you again for your people, the the joyful fellowship of life in the congregation and the relationships here and our life together, serving you, the growths, the joys, the sorrows we've seen over the years, and your sufficient kindness through it all. So bless us again here on another Sunday evening in your perfect providence. Bless us as we seek to study your word and seek to be your people and serve you. Forgive us of our many sins of great pride and send us out as your witnesses armed with your truth guided by your grace to show your love, glory, and goodness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin tonight in chapter 19, and chapters 19 and 20 seem to go together as one chunk, we have reached a turning point in Matthew's gospel. It's a turning point that we saw in the previous section, where in chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus announced that he must go to Jerusalem in order to die and then be raised. And from that point forward, Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem and he is beginning to make the journey to Jerusalem where he will meet that faith. And as he goes, he is instructing his disciples, this is how God's kingdom will come. 
The Bible prophesies, the Old Testament promises that in the last days, Jerusalem will be this renewed city, the central place of worship, the temple highly exalted, and all the nations flowing to it. Well, Jesus says that is what God is going to do. But the way he brings it about won't be exactly what you expect. I'm the temple, and I'm going to be torn down so I can be raised up and remake my people into a temple. And as I gather the nations into that new temple, that will be the renewed people of God. That will be the restored people, city, temple in the end days. And it will come about by my death and by my resurrection. So he's got to teach the disciples this is how it's going to go. And he's journeying towards Jerusalem in order, like David... To subdue Jerusalem. One of David's first acts as king was to subdue Jerusalem. Well, Jesus is going to subdue it as well, but in a very different way. By first being subdued so that he might be raised and then bring in his kingdom and his way. That's what it means to walk the path with the Savior. And when Jesus announced that path, when he told his disciples, this is where we're journeying. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to die. He also invited them to come along. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If you want to keep following me, be ready to take up the cross. Be ready to die. The same path that I walk is the path that you must walk. And just as I give myself in sacrificial obedience, so you must do so as well. And so I say all that to say that's the lens we can put on these chapters. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Will the disciples go with him? If they will go, these are the demands they must meet. Or to put it a different way, if they're going to be his disciples, these are the kinds of disciples they must be. And so these chapters here, especially chapters 19 and 20, give us this idea of these are the demands of discipleship. This is the education Jesus is giving them. And in many ways, it's a re-education about what it means to belong to the people of God. And as we'll see throughout this section, Jesus' demands are characterized by unsettling challenges. Unsettling challenges to the conventional attitudes, to the everyday values of Israel, especially as these relate to family and social life. And they'll get increasingly unsettling the further down this road we go. And some commentators have compared Jesus' instructions here with those sections in Paul where he says, all right, this is marriage in the kingdom of God. And this is family life in the kingdom of God. Well, this is what Jesus is doing here. This is what marriage and family and following me will look like in the kingdom of God. And as Jesus teaches the disciples, we'll realize you know, their grasp of these values is still somewhat small, but how often are ours small as we walk with God and he brings us into greater and greater knowledge. But we'll find throughout, things don't work the same way in the kingdom of heaven as they do in the kingdoms of the world. And twice in this passage, we find the slogan, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first, which really puts a unifying idea on Jesus' teaching. So let's do that tonight as fellow followers of Jesus. Let's listen to his words. Let's have him instruct us on how to follow our master 
in the way he wants us to live. Again, it's, it's so easy for us to form our own ideas of discipleship and, and our own ideas of witness. And they don't always align with Jesus' vision. And so his teaching here reorients us. It shows us the things God values most in his kingdom. So let's hear what Jesus says about the demands of discipleship. And we'll see it in three areas. First, we have marriage, divorce, and celibacy. Now, as we come to this first section, verses 1 through 12, uh, the passage we read at the beginning, doing this passage in the flow of the Gospels really helps highlight the value of going through the Gospel in a serial fashion. In other words, going through a book of the Bible, and especially the Gospels, section by section. You see, when we have questions about controversial topics or even ordinary topics such as marriage and divorce, it's tempting to say, okay, let me find the section of the Bible uh, that addresses that topic and, and then I'll formulate a systematic answer and, and I'll know what the Bible teaches on this issue. And, and don't get me wrong to be clear, systematic organization, that's a legitimate theological enterprise. We absolutely should do that when we study the Bible. But what I'm saying is the Gospels weren't written as an encyclopedia. In other words, they don't just list topics one after another without any kind of intentional arrangement. In other words, we don't realize the Gospels and say, okay, this is what Jesus thinks about money. Okay, all right, this is what Jesus thinks about divorce. We, can, we understand that now. Let's move on to the next topic. No, Matthew places this discussion here in this section of the Gospel for a reason. To highlight the values that must characterize those who follow Jesus. Or to put it another way, the purpose of this passage is to highlight the values of God's kingdom. And the values that we should reflect as Jesus' disciples. It's not merely given to provide answers to a controversial debate. Though it will do that as well. So what values then does Jesus put before us by engaging this topic? What's the big idea? Well, the passage begins with the Pharisees asking him a question to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 3. And that question is not just academic. That's a live debate in Jesus' day, what are the proper grounds for divorce? This is something the Old Testament addresses. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, allow a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce if she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. And that's basically a quote. From Deuteronomy 24. But that's about all that Deuteronomy says. So it raises the question, what is the indecent thing? What are the grounds for a wife becoming displeasing to a husband and thus being dismissed and being divorced? Well, that was the debate in Jesus' day. That's what the debate was all about. And there were essentially two schools of thought. One interpreted the phrase more specifically and allowed for fewer grounds of divorce. The other school of thought interpreted the phrase more broadly and allowed for many grounds for divorce. 
And the Pharisees want to know, which camp are you in? Jesus, you're a rabbi, so which camp do you fall into? Now, Jesus is not afraid to answer the question. In fact, he spoke to this issue in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, and he gave and the answer he gave there is essentially the same answer he gives here. What he said in the Sermon on the Mount is, I tell you uh, that anyone, or excuse me, no, the, the answer he gives here, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. That's verse 9, Sermon on the Mount has a few more words with it, but it's essentially the same answer. And that answer does put Jesus closer to one of the camps, the one that allowed few grounds for divorce. But what I want you to see is this. Even though his answer puts him closer to one of the camps, he doesn't answer the question in a way that simply places him in one of the camps because he does not base his answer on Deuteronomy 24. He doesn't say, oh, you want to know what Deuteronomy 24 means? I'll tell you. In fact, he almost does the opposite. He identifies Deuteronomy 24 as something that God merely permitted because people have hard hearts. Now, I want you friends to think about that for a minute. Jesus just said that part of God's Old Testament law, his inspired an errant law was only given and was merely permitted because people have hard hearts. In other words, Deuteronomy 24 does not represent God's ideal ethical standard. It is an accommodation to people's hard hearts. So what then is the ideal standard? God's design in creation. Verses 4 through 6 read, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says this is the original principle. And the original principle must take precedence over the later concession. The creation principle trumps the concession to human weakness. And using this principle as a guide for interpreting the Bible, other commentators go on to make this point. This is a principle which applies much more widely than only to the specific issue of divorce. Ethical norms should be sought not in legal texts which deal with the situation where things have already gone wrong, but in the most fundamental statements available of the positive will of God for human behavior. The ethics of the kingdom of heaven, as we've seen them illustrated in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek not primarily how evil may be contained and alleviated, but how the best may be discerned and followed. And I think that is what Jesus is getting at here. If you are going to follow me as king, you must seek what is best and not what is merely permissible. 
do the best that God has built into his creation. And the best that God has designed may even go against the structures of the world or go against the structure of the current culture. And that may even be a religious culture as it was in Israel's day. Again, God's design is to restore his creation. The new creation is breaking into time. And as Jesus' disciples live out the principles of the kingdom and the new creation, they will seek to do God's best, not, not that which is merely permissible or is a concession to human hearts. Follow me and make me your first priority is really what Jesus is saying. And we'll see that again before we leave this passage. Now, looking at these last few verses, what really interests me about this passage and I don't think I really noticed it until I was studying for this message, is how the disciples respond. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Well, I guess you have to at least commend the disciples for being honest, right? Better not to marry if you can't keep your commitment. But you know what? Perhaps that's exactly what they mean. Maybe they're recognizing Jesus' demands. I read their phrase as kind of sarcastic, but maybe they're not actually being sarcastic. Maybe they're just recognizing this is what you demand, Lord. And better not to sign up for the kingdom if you cannot do what your king demands. And then Jesus' response seems to reinforce that when he commends a life of celibacy for those who are unable to marry. Jesus says some are not able to marry because of the way they are born. Others are not able to marry because of something that has happened to them. And then others, perhaps including these first groups, but wider, do not marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Paul will echo this in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says there are those who can do more for the kingdom alone. There are times when singleness is preferable to married life. But there are other times when you can and should get married. What's the principle that determines what choice you should make? Paul says, in what circumstance can you do the most for God's kingdom? That's what Jesus is getting at here. You should prioritize my kingdom and you should make the sacrifices and the commitments that are necessary for you to pursue my kingdom above anything else. That is why Jesus addresses the topic of marriage, divorce, and celibacy. Now let's come into the second uh, section here, the middle verses, verses 13 through 15. Where Jesus addresses children and humility. And here's what you're going to see. The emphasis on the kingdom continues here. So now that we're in this mindset of not just looking for Jesus' answers on hot button issues. But what is Jesus saying about the kingdom? Now these passages are starting to make a little more sense. So here people bring little children to Jesus for him to bless them. And the disciples hinder them. Now, maybe the disciples mean, well, you know, Jesus does need rest. There are times Jesus gets away in order to have rest. But it's interesting that whenever the disciples stiff arm people, it's women and children. So the more likely explanation is they're reflecting the values of the culture in which they live. Children were second class citizens. 
And Jesus is a great rabbi. He should not be bothered by these children. He doesn't have time for them. But again, we find the disciples, like when we saw them interact with a Syrophoenician woman, once again, they are out of sympathy. They are out of step with Jesus' value scale. And Jesus instead welcomes the little children. And he makes this statement in verse 14. Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And once again, like in the previous section, Jesus is echoing something he said before. Back in Matthew 18, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus is, again, taking that principle and summarizing it in order to highlight this idea that the disciples are still struggling to process. That they should welcome children. But again, we should ask, I ask, why does Jesus welcome the children? What is he trying to tell us about the kingdom? Again, it's not just a moral standard. Don't get divorced. Welcome children. As good as those standards are. Rather, the standards reflect the reality of the kingdom. And in this instance, the reality is that kingdom citizens are the unimportant, the dependent, the vulnerable. Kingdom citizens acknowledge their dependence on God. These are attitudes that come very naturally to children because of their age, because of their abilities, because of their social standings. But they're attitudes that we must all embrace if we are going to enter God's kingdom and if we are going to flourish in God's kingdom. In other words, Jesus is saying the attitudes and the ambitions of the world, they don't fuel growth in the kingdom. You're putting the wrong fuel in the engine if you try to drive the kingdom that way. When we were on our trip, one gas station we pulled up to, it had three hoses and five buttons that you could push to get the fuel you wanted. And I told Beth, I really hope I'm putting the right gas in this engine because we're not going very far uh, if we don't. You've got to put the right gas in the engine to drive the car. And Jesus is saying here, if you're trying to drive the car with the world's values, you can't. My values are against it. My values turn it upside down. My values are like those of children and you've got to embrace them to follow me. And now let's come then to the last section. Verses 16 through 30 on wealth and sacrifice. And now I know this is the longest of the paragraphs in this chapter. But again, we can just highlight the main ideas in order to hear what Jesus is saying. So here's just the breakdown. Here's the skeleton of the story. In verse 16, someone comes to Jesus and they want to know how to be saved. Don't you wish more people would... Come to you like that and just ask you flat out? Well, the disciples apparently did. Because now they make no attempt to turn this man away. I mean, the kids are a bother, but this guy's young and a ruler and he's rich. Okay, yeah, you come. Uh, we're, we're interested in talking to you. But interestingly, in verse 17, now Jesus is the one who appears to put up the stiff arm. He answers, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. 
If you want to enter life, keep the commands. Now, why does Jesus seem to put this man off? Why does Jesus seem to deflect from the idea that he is good? And why does he tell this man to obey the law for salvation? Because Jesus loves this man and wants this man to put the pieces of the puzzle together if he's going to have eternal life. So on his goodness, Jesus forces this man to draw the conclusion. Oh, you call me good? That's how Mark and Luke recorded. Oh, you ask me about what is good? You need to recognize there's only one who's good. That's God. So if you're going to come to me and ask me about what's good, if you're going to call me good, then connect the dots because I am God. But you've got to realize that. And then on keeping the commandments, I think Jesus is setting this man up to realize what he is still missing. You see, Jesus says, keep the commandments. And in verse 20, the young man claims, I have. So Jesus says, all right, sell everything and follow me. And I think Jesus is taking his finger and he's putting it on the one area of disobedience in this man's life. Because it's addressing the one commandment that Jesus never mentioned. He said, which commandments? And Jesus listed the commandments from the second table of the law. The commandments that deal with how we interact with one another. And Jesus left off the last one. You shall not covet. And I think when he tells this man to sell his possessions, he's saying, have you really kept the commands? There's one more I didn't mention. Let's see how you relate to possessions and wealth and desire. And when this young man is faced with this requirement, he goes away sad. And it leads Jesus to say, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, once again, basically hearing how hard it is to be a part of the kingdom, like they responded to marriage. Again, they say in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? To which Jesus replies, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's the essence of the story. So what is it asking of us? Again, I think just like we've seen in the first two passages, it's asking us how much of a priority is God's kingdom to you? Are you willing to do anything to enter it and to live by its standards? You see, the disciples welcomed this man because ordinary Jewish thinking regarded wealth as a sign of God's favor. You're rich. You must be blessed by God. Jesus turns it around. He says his wealth isn't a sign of favor for this man. His wealth is an impediment. It keeps him from following me. And so we should all ask, what keeps me from following Jesus? And we may ask as we read this question, okay, well... Am I supposed to give away all my possessions? I mean, am I not allowed to own a home or a car or have a savings account? Should I give everything away? This is one of those passages where we want, you, just, you want to respect two poles. The last thing you want to do is to lay on God's people a standard that God himself does not lay on them. It would be unfair and it wouldn't be right to say, okay, do this if God isn't actually saying do this. 
At the same time, these passages have teeth for a reason. And the last thing we want to do is take out the teeth so they never bother us. Here's what I see when it comes to wealth in the Bible. There are those who come to Jesus and he receives them and they do not follow the standard. So Zacchaeus promises, I'll give away half of my possessions and I'll pay back anyone I've cheated. And Jesus says, that'll work. Come follow me. So I don't want to say, yes, this is the, the unilateral, one-size-fits-all demands for all of God's people. At the same time, I read comments like this, and maybe they sting a little bit, but maybe we should just hear them and let them sit with us and pray about how we can best obey God. One commentator says that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions. That only gives comfort to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. You hear what he's saying? If we're the kind of people like, whoo, so glad I don't have to do that. That's probably the kind of person Jesus would say, you may need to think about that. Uh, others go on to say, however differently the material detachment which Jesus requires, however it may work out in different times and circumstances, the church will be parting company from Jesus' teaching at a fundamental level if it loses sight of the principle that affluence is in essential opposition to the kingdom of heaven. And thus Paul warns, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now Paul says the love of money. And so that's where the principal ethic lies. What do we love? What are we unwilling to give away in order to follow Jesus? God, if God providentially blesses some people, the last thing you want to do is act like you're shaming them merely for that reason. Nor do you want to create this idea where it looks like there's envy, so we just mask it as spirituality. I'm, I just don't love money like you do. Beware that that's not a cloak for envy. But here, what Jesus is saying, Nothing should come between the disciple and the pursuit of God's kingdom. As the disciples say, or as Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Only God can change your priorities. Only God can give you righteousness. That's what this man needed, right? Only God can give you righteousness. Only God can enable you to become a disciple. Only God can change our hearts. So that we follow Jesus and trust him. And again, I think that's the main point. Does anything lay between you and Jesus? If not, he can change that. But he alone can do that. And don't miss the addendum. I'm closing, but don't miss this end. In verse 27, Peter says, well, hey, we've done that. Lord, we did what you've asked. We, we've left everything to follow you. And you might think that at this point, Peter is setting himself up for another rebuke. But interestingly, Jesus does not rebuke Peter. Instead, he says, Peter, my disciples, I promise you two things. One, I promise you a reversal in verses 28 and 30. Those of you who have followed me, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, you're excluded now because you're following me. You've given up wealth to follow me. And this rich young ruler is not following me. 
So he's going to go on and live the good life now while you are making sacrifices. Well, one day there will be a great reversal. Those who are excluded will sit in judgment and join God in evaluating his world and the renewal of all things. There will be those who go into the eternal kingdom when the kingdoms of this world pass away. And as Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now again, beware of the creeping self-righteousness that would say, ha ha, see, you people will get your due in the end. By God's grace, we follow him and enjoy this reward. But he does promise the reversal. He says it's worth it. And he does promise a recompense. Verse 29, everyone who has left Houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Peter pipes up and says, what about us? We follow you. And you might think Jesus is going to smack him down. But instead Jesus says, you know, you're right. And one day you'll, you'll enjoy a reversal. And one day you'll enjoy a recompense. So come follow me. And let's pray for God's grace to do it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, Spirit of God, who changes hearts. By your grace, we are your disciples. So Lord, continue to convince us that submitting to your kingdom demands is worth it. And help us to do it in a humble, holy, and gracious manner. That we might follow you and invite others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you for your great grace and give us victory over any remaining impediments as we seek to follow you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.